You can be seated. How many know the three responses of God when you pray? Anybody? Ten? He's like, there's ten? Ellis, do you know that what God says when you pray? There's three different things he can say. And if you're going to be a pastor someday, you have to make them rhyme. So there's three responses that we get when we pray. <laughs> I'm going to tell you the rhyming way because it worked. Because somebody was, I was talking with someone last Tuesday and they were able to tell me the rhyme. I didn't know it. I'm not that good. I, I can't do alliterations and rhyming three points. The three things are go, slow, or no. Right? So, so there's either this, this yes that we get when we, when we ask God for things, and, and that's our favorite, right? When we're asking God for things and it's an immediate yes, we're like, that's right. And then there's the, the, the not yet or the slow. And, and, and so we can, we can travel on and not really know what's going on, but we're kind of in this waiting period. And if anyone's read Dr. Seuss's Other Places You'll Go, you know the waiting place is not your place. It's not for you. And we always want to push past this waiting place. We want to get out of it. It feels like we've been in the waiting place since November and we're tired of being in, I mean, nothing specific. <laughs> we just want to move out of the waiting place and into something else, into the things that we know are going to be so fantastic and so great. And then there's the one we all love to hear. Nope. When God just says no. And, and that makes us mad Unless you're a product of the 90s, if you're like in high school in the 90s, and you know Garth Brooks' song, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. And we, we reconciled at that point with the great theologian Garth Brooks. It's funny that I call him that, because I've I, I worked backstage at one of his concerts when he was in Kansas City, and uh, it was, he was one of the most ruckus people I've ever met in my entire life. And baseball fans, George Brett was there. And George Brett came backstage and gave Garth Brooks a Royals jersey to wear. And, and, and George Brett was, he wasn't three sheets to the wind. He was about 12 sheets to the wind. The dude was plastered. And anyway, <laughs> that was just a little rabbit trail. Uh, but we, we have these three things. And, and it's, a good, it's good for us to know those things are true. Because what it does for us as believers is it tells us that God answers all prayer. We just don't always see the answer, we don't like the answer, or we're too impatient to get the answer, but the, it has been answered. But it's also, I mentioned a few weeks ago, there's, a, there's an author, and he's a YouTuber now, um, that, I, that, that again, I will just preface this with, unless you are the most solid Christian you've ever been in your entire life, do not pick up one of his books. His name is Sam Harris, and he's brilliant, and he's one of the most uh, renowned atheists out there right now. And Sam Harris talks about this idea of the three elements of God answering prayer as the way you can disprove prayer. Because he said, there's no way that you can disprove it with those because you've covered all bases. So I could pray to a milk jug and get the same results. It is his point, right? He could, he could ask a milk jug for these things and if it doesn't happen, he can just say, well, the milk jug said no. Or the milk jug said not yet. But if it happened, then he could just say, well, that was coincidence. And that's kind of the argument. But these three things are the way that God intervenes in ways that we end up missing him intervening because it's not the way we want him to intervene. 
And so in the midst of intervention, if God is going to show up and intervene, we have to be ready for the intervention to look like a way we weren't expecting the intervention to take place. Today's story is from the Gospel of Luke. It's in my favorite chapter. Luke 8 is my favorite chapter in all of Scripture. And it, it takes place mostly because Luke talks about these amazing miracles of, of healing and transplanting and, 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 and bringing back to life and all this really great stuff. And I love it too because normally today would be, you know, I would be very excited, more excited than I normally am. And I'll tell you why. It's June 30th. You know what tomorrow is? July 1st. So normally I take July off. <laughs> so normally I would be all like, this is, uh, I, I, this, I'm going to come and kill this, and then I'm going to sleep in tomorrow, and, but I'm not doing that this year. So the, one of the reasons why this story is so exactly where it needs to be right now for me is the story takes place as Jesus is going on vacation. Jesus is leaving the city of Gal- the, the town of Galilee, where his home, his home turf, where he's been preaching to the Jews, and, and he's been living amongst the Jerusalem, and all this kind of stuff, all these common people. And he says he's going to go across the lake. And he's going across the lake because he needs some rest and relaxation. He needs to get away a little bit. The guy's tired. And so they get in the boat, and they sail across. And as they dock, Jesus is greeted with the worst city council tourism board ever. Like, if, if, you have, if you have a system set up, a, a chamber of commerce set up, this is not the guy you want as people come in. So we're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 8, which I don't have saved here, so hopefully. hopefully is your thing working, Mike? Oh! They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee, when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. Like I said, if you have a welcoming committee, if any of you are planning a party, um, probably try not to get this guy to greet at the door. He, he, he actually applied for the job the same time Lynn did, but we gave it to Lynn because he gave better hugs. For a long time, this man had worn clothes, had, had not worn clothes. For a long time, he'd worn clothes. Good. That's almost like when Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and he was hungry. <laughs> he had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Je- <laughs> Not the best prayer, Right? I mean, if you're, if you're trying to work on your prayer life and you've got your prayer closet all organized and you just fall down and say, Jesus, don't torture me. Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, Legion, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus, let them go into the pigs. Just, just for the record, uh, Carr and I both brought pulled pork. <laughs> Demon-free pigs. Just disclaimer. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and, they hurt, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this. 
They reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasians asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from the demons... Uh, the man from whom the demons had gone out begged him to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. This is one of those stories that is just crazy enough that everyone in 2019 wants to pull it apart, pick it apart, and disprove all of it. We, we have a thing, and, I, and I'm not... When I say we have a thing, I'm saying that sometimes my skeptic side, when people talk about demon possession or any of that stuff, I'm like, man, I don't know. Maybe that happened a long time ago. Maybe it didn't. I have no idea. And this, is, this, this particular one is under a lot of scrutiny with, with the commentaries that I was reading about the fact that this is very easily explained as schizophrenia. So if you think he had many demons inside of him, and so a lot, of, a lot of commentators say, the guy just had schizophrenia, and they don't know what to do. They didn't diagnose it that way. The DSM-0 wasn't out then. Um, I don't know what came before. Was there a DSM-3 before 4 and before 5? There was? Okay, so the, the DSM-BC uh, did not exist, so they couldn't diagnose schizophrenia back then. And so a, a lot of people are saying all, a lot of these possessions were just simply mental illness, and we didn't know what to do with that. And that's great. You know what? If you want to believe that, that's fine. But I'm going to tell you right now, the point of this story isn't even about the demons. The point of the story isn't even about the possession. A lot of times we get caught up in this idea that if one part, if we can just, dis if one part's disprovable, then it's all gone. Somebody asked me not too long ago, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, National Geographic ran a story that they found the tomb of Jesus because it said Jesus bar Joseph. Jesus, son of Joseph, as if that wasn't the most common name ever back then. <laughs> and so somebody said, well, what are you going to do if it's true? I said that I'm going to be a great Jew. It doesn't change the fact that Yahweh is still God. I don't, it wasn't true, just for the record, and I didn't ever jump on ship and say that it was true. But it's this idea that we just can't let one little thing that someone can throw at us and go, oh, it's all gone. The whole thing. It's nonsense now. We can be people that, that can embrace science and religion. Those things do not have to be separate. In fact, they can't be separate. And we don't have to keep trying to prove science with Scripture, and we can't keep trying to use science to prove Scripture. Yeah, that's right. They, they, they can't... We, the Bible is not a history book. It's not a science book. It's not a textbook. It's a book of theology. It's a story of a God that loved in such a way that he created out of love and how he intervened with his creation throughout all time. So the minute we pick up a Bible and say, yeah, um, the earth is really only 2,000 years old or 3,000 years old or 4,000 years old. If you, if you are a new earther, that's fine. You can believe that. But the bottom line is we can't die on that if science is going to prove that it's not because then what happens to your faith? You're shot. If you put all your stake, everything you have, you put in the fact that the earth is only 3,500 years old because if you do the Bible lineage, that's how far back it goes or whatever, 
then, then the minute that carbon dating is real, <laughs> you say, I don't know what to do now. My faith is history. We, Julie and I, um, we're about to celebrate our 20th year of marriage, which is an accomplishment because that means that Julie had lived with me more than she lived with her parents. That's, that's right. I don't know if that invokes ownership or what, but... Uh, <laughs> When we were getting married, we wanted to get married on January 1st, 2000. Mostly, I think she was thinking of me and remembering our anniversary. And if it was on a zero, zero year, I could just do the math. Um, anything else is hard. So January 1st, 2000 was our wedding date. We started sending out save the date things. And people were like, well, we're not coming. Anybody know why? Y2K. Y2K. That thing that didn't exist. <laughs> So many people were like, well, we're not going to come to the wedding. Even local people were like, we're not going to come to the wedding. Well, we've, we've got friends that um, they, they sold everything. They cashed out their life insurance policies. They, they were sure that Jesus was coming. January 1st, 2000. That's what Y2K stands for. Yahshua to come. I don't know. <laughs> they, they were so convinced that that was the day that they, they sold everything. And guess what happened on January 1st? They're, they were still there. They went outside. There was no pile of clothes anywhere. There weren't cars that crashed and planes that crashed because everyone just got wished into heaven. It, their life had to go on. But guess what? They were very, very humiliated because they told everyone. They were so convinced. They told everyone. And we tend to get bottled into things like this. We tend to get so caught up in things that we know to be true. Here's another one. Rapture. I can't find it in Scripture. I can find a Scripture that talks about being taken up into the clouds. So in the Nazarene church, which by the way, anyone when we sang that hymn feel like you were just bragging? <laughs> Jesus the Nazarene. What did the Baptist sing? John the Baptist? I mean, good for them. He said he wasn't worthy to tie Jesus' shoes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, in the Nazarene church, we don't take a firm stance on this idea of rapture or mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, pre-tribulation, all these tribulations, all these end-time stuff. What we say is this, Jesus is coming back. When it happens or how it happens, we can talk about that over coffee, but it doesn't matter when it comes to salvation. And the things that we're going to die on a hill are the things that we think fall under salvation title. We believe that Scripture is not... Hear what I'm saying, not what I'm not saying. We do not believe that this book is completely inerrant. We believe that it is inspired by a living, breathing God written by people. Okay? Is there a hot tub in here? <laughs> written, written by people that all had their own story to tell that God gave them to tell through a different voice. What we believe is that it is inspired in such a way that everything you need for salvation is contained in this book. There is nothing outside of this book that you need to figure out. There's no blue pill to take in order to figure out what's really going on. Everything you need to know to get to heaven is contained in this book. That's what we take on this. We, we, there's not a whole lot of hard stances because... When you take a hard stance, and that hard stance is somehow disproven, what do you do? You have to retreat. And I just want to be the kind of Christian that doesn't retreat. 
I want to be the kind of Christian that lives along this living, breathing God that is always moving, always going forward, always pulling me that way, that I don't have to ever go, yeah, but, uh, uh, well, yeah, I know I said that once, but um, really what I meant, because this is what we do, really what we meant by that was um, that uh, we didn't really mean that. Um, we meant something else. Because the Greek, uh, when it was translated from the Latin um, out of the Hebrew into the Aramaic, um, we lose some of that. And, and we just get so caught up in stuff that we forget that what Jesus is in the business of doing is restoring identity to how you were created in the beginning. So when Jesus got to the shore and that man was tied up, frothing at the mouth, this is just, I, I picture him with a dog collar. He probably didn't have it, but in a big, big, big fat chain. You know, like the one you chain barbecues up with outside so no one steals them? Big chain. And he's just tied up to one of the tombs. And he's just crazy, just going absolutely long hair, totally naked, and just running around like a wild man, right? This is a man that greets Jesus on the side. And when he greets him, there is not a demon-possessed man. There is not a mentally ill man. There, there, is, there is nothing like that. What is, what is there is someone that is a creation born in the identity of God that no longer has the identity that was given to him in the first place. And so what Jesus is going to do is he is going to restore identity. And no matter how much we get caught up on whether or not they are mentally ill or they were actually possessed or what was going on here or what really happened or is that scientific, it doesn't matter. What we need to know is this, that God in the form of Jesus is in the, the business of restoring identity. And so when he looks at that man and he says, who are you? And the man says, I'm legion. Jesus says, no, you're not. That's not who you are. That's not who you were created to be. And then Jesus restores identity by taking out the identity he's accepted and adopted and throwing it into the pigs. Which, by the way, so poetic, right? Because Jews don't do pigs. And so for this the whole idea of Jesus taking the demons out and putting them in the swine, the things that they already deem as completely unclean, and then casting them into the lake. Not to mention what he did to the economy of the Gerasians at that point. Because someone owned those pigs. There's this amazing thing that Jesus steps in and says, no, you're not legion. You've been told that for a long time. They've chained you up out here. You've accepted that to be true, but you're not legion. Here's who you are. Cast out the demons and what happens? It says he, a man in his right mind was fully clothed sitting at the feet of Jesus. His identity was completely changed. When God intervened, it wasn't how it would have been easy to intervene. He could have just cast these demons out. I always wondered, why didn't Jesus just send them back to hell or wherever they came from? Why do you have to send them into pigs? Does he not have that much control? This is all about the identity of the swine. Is, they're already unclean. So give them the unclean. It's almost that whole thing with give Caesar what is Caesar's. Give the unclean the unclean. And Jesus restores this identity, and he restores the identity of those pigs. The whole identity of full circle becomes restored, and now this whole new thing happens. This child of God is sitting, restored at the feet of Jesus after an intervention, and he says this. He says, God, now, Jesus, let me come with you. And Jesus goes, no. How many times did Jesus say after he healed someone, or when they asked the question, he said, come follow me. And this guy's willing. 
He, he's, he's so willing, because think about it, how many years he's been living out in the tombs, his family back at home, disgraced by this man. Right? I don't know if he had a wife and kids, or he had parents. So, so there's, there's, there's some kind of history back in town that linked to this man. And he says, let me come with you. And Jesus says, no, go home and tell them what, you have done, what God has done for you. Go home. And t- that's not the intervention he wanted. The intervention was he wanted to be one of those disciples. He wanted to get in the boat when they were done. And he wanted to start sailing around. And he wanted to be one of those people because God had touched him in such a way. And Jesus said, no, I want you to go home. I want you to go and tell people the good things that God has done for you. Let me just show you why sometimes God does things to us or for us or with us in order to a bigger picture to happen. The years of this man living out by the tombs have become comfortable. I've said this before, and it's a little crass. I apologize. Sometimes when we're in our own crap, at least it's our own. Right? And it becomes comfortable. At least we know that demon. At least we know the stuff, and it becomes comfortable to us. And we don't really care that much. In fact, it's scarier to leave it than it is to be in it and deal with it. it just to, it's what's normal. It's just normal life. And so for this, Jesus could have taken this man with him. And you know what would have happened? Nothing would have happened in that town. Everything would have back to normal. The story of the wild man down, at the, uh, down by the lakeshore would have just been the story of the wild man down by the lakeshore. Remember that guy? That was crazy. But now, Jesus sends this man back into town. And so now everybody that sees him on a daily basis remembers what he was. Remembers how mad he was, how crazy he was, how frothy he was, how dangerous he was, how he would break free of chains, how he'd run away. They, they're constantly, every time he goes to the water, every time he goes to the, to the gates, every time he does anything and somebody sees him, they're reminded of this thing. They're reminded of what God does. It's almost as if God had a bigger plan of just changing this man's identity and wanted to change the identity of the entire community. And so through this man, it wasn't about just getting healed and then following Jesus. It was about getting his identity restored back to a child of God and then going into town to remind them that God has the ability to restore identity. And this town's identity had been lost. Or it was never known. Remember, this is a a Gentile city. So now, all of a sudden, this new identity is being brought in. Um, For years, and still a little bit even now, but for years, I would always jokingly refer to my other pastor friends that Connected was a gateway church. Because we'd get people that come in that don't want to go to church, and that are just rough, and and, and just kind of, you know, they don't know that they shouldn't use the F word when they talk to me up here. True story, several times. And we would just love them. And we, we would just want them to come and let them feel comfortable. And I would never say, oh, you shouldn't say that in the house of God. Go out in the parking lot if you're going to use that language where Jesus isn't. <laughs> we, we would just say, you are welcome, and we're going to watch you grow, and this is a really fun journey. And so what would happen is all of a sudden, people would kind of get their quote-unquote lives together right? They'd polish up themselves enough to where they started to speak a little Christianese. They started to know the language. They started to know the drills. And then all of a sudden, they'd disappear. And we'd call them and go, oh, we're going to Hilltop now. Okay. Okay. 
or we're going, and, and then after I dove in, it, at first it made me mad. I'm like, well, thanks for letting me invest for the past two years while you were a mess, and now Hilltop gets his fully functional adult. <laughs> That's great. But then I realized something. I realized that when you come to a place and you're out of a place of addiction or you're out of a place of just complete turmoil and you're still around that, it can be hard. The thing is, is that we need to be a place that is set to be identity changing. And so sometimes if you've come a long way and now you're fully restored and you're ready to go somewhere else, think to yourself, maybe what, what you're here for is to change the identity of this place. Maybe what God wants, how he wants to intervene is through your story going back and saying, look what God has done for me. He did this right here in this place. Because it's easy for a church to lose its identity if everybody just leaves all the time. And it, I, on a personal note, it also hurts my feelings. <laughs> Jesus steps in and says, your identity is not what people have changed you up as. Your identity is freedom. And in that freedom, you are a child of God. And where does he go when he's a child of God but to the feet of Jesus? Sometimes I think that if we give too many, we think to ourselves, if we give too much freedom, people will run away. If we free them, they'll run. But in reality, if people are truly free, they're going to go to one place, the feet of Jesus. And we have to trust that message of freedom. We have to trust the ability to let people go and to let people be who God created them to be and remind them as they are going, as they are freed, who they are and whose they are. And in the midst of that, then, their freedom translates to not running amok, but to being at the feet of Jesus. So much so that when Jesus gets ready to leave, you say, okay, I'm going with you. I, I need to go with you. And sometimes Jesus says, fine, come. I want you to. And sometimes he says, I appreciate your eagerness. But slow your roll. I need you to go home and tell everyone what had happened right here. So that every single day they are reminded. I want you to think about someone. It's not hard. If you've lived here long enough, you can probably picture a person that probably lives on the street, that you drive by or walk by or see on the same corner, that you, that, that you interact with, kind of. That uh, maybe it's, there, there used to be a, a young man in Chico that really fits this description very well. He had clothes on and, and he wasn't chained anywhere, but he would just constantly yell. And you would drive by him on the street, he'd just be yelling. And, and, and you don't know who he's yelling to, but he would just be yelling. And there was another young man who, would, who, who had big old headphones on. Um, and, and he would just come down the road and you, he'd, like this, and he's yelling. And, and I thought always that this man was rapping until he showed up at church and the, the headphones are not hooked up to anything. And the reason why he had the headphones on is people thought, so people thought he was just rapping along with his music. It was an uncontrollable thing for him. And so he wore the headphones and people thought he was normal. A little wild, but normal. Th think about those people that their identity has been completely stripped for them for whatever reason. Some of you know people that are just lost in addiction. Uh, addiction 
is, is, is yes, it, it, there, there's mental, there's physical, there's all kinds of compulsions that keep you there. But really, it's an identity issue. And how do we remind people of their identity? Jesus shows up and gives community to this man. And in community, he recognizes his identity. He, sit, he wasn't sitting by himself at the feet of Jesus. The others were there in the midst of community. It's why, it's why recovery groups work. But the problem is, when you go to a recovery group and then that becomes your identity, as opposed to Jesus being your identity, as opposed to being a child of God, fully restored being your identity. We go to these things. We embrace community. This is why we have Family Sundays. There are some people that come to our church that don't sit around a table ever with a family member. This is the time we're going to do that. There are kids that need to see adults having fun and laughing and encouraging them and interacting with them. This is why we do that. Community is identity giving. And if we can be the kind of community here that wraps our identity around Jesus and that's who we are, then the people that come find their identity solid in Jesus. And that's what we want. So as the band comes, connecting time looks different today. I'm going to step all over Jess's toes. We, 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 uh, we normally have communion during connecting time, but I am a firm believer that when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, and he broke the bread and they ate and they drank, he wasn't talking about breaking bread or wafers in little plastic cups. He wasn't talking about dipping bread in juice. He was talking about sharing a meal together. And so... For connecting time today, part of communion is when we go out these doors and we go and we eat together. We sit down at the tables and we actually have communion together. We're, we're going to sit down and we're going to break bread. We are going to share a meal. So that part of it is off the table today. We still have the cross back there if you want to nail any burden down or if you want to light a candle to see the light penetrate darkness in the, in the way that you pray. Uh, the chest is up here to receive your tithes and offerings. Um, they, they, all of that is the same, but I really want you to know that we didn't just skip communion today because I forgot to put water in the coffee. That happened last week. It could be either way. Sometimes it happens both ways. But what we're doing is we are purposely connecting outside of this room over a meal as our communion. So as the band starts to sing, feel free to interact with the other stations. We'll come back together, uh, have a benediction, a prayer, and then we'll go out and eat together.